0: forgive me for saying that I just but I have to do that you know it's the it's the it's the way of the world these days okay hey um one of the main reasons I'm excited that you're here this morning is to hear from our special guest speaker this morning we for the last 7 weeks have been in this series called explore god where we've been examining major questions about god is there a god uh, is christianity too narrow why does God allow pain and suffering, things like that? Um, and this morning, following on the heels of that series, we get to hear from one of my mentors, one of my favorite professor, professors Excuse me, at Dallas Seminary, Dr. Scott Harrell. Go ahead and come on up here, Dr. Harrell. Uh, Dr. Harrell is married to Ruth, and you can pray for Ruth this week as she's going in for a hip yeah. replacement. Uh, and he has two beautiful daughters and eight grandkids, Got right? Them. Yep. Wow. Um, he, listen, when I went to Dallas Seminary, okay, many of you know my pastor, Bruce Ewing, who's been here to preach for us. Pastor Bruce gave me some advice when I left for seminary. He said, Ross, when you go down to Dallas, don't major in a subject, major in a person. Find somebody that you connect with, that you respect, that, that you think you can glean as much from, me, and just soak them up. Take whatever you can from them. And when I got to Dallas Seminary in the summer of 2004, I took a two-week summer class with Dr. Horrell on Trinitarianism, and I realized, this is my guy. And let me tell you why. It isn't just because he's a wonderful scholar, because many, most professors are great (laughs) scholars, but it was was because not only his great scholarship, but it was also because this man had a pastoral heart. He cared for his students, and he also had a mission mindset. He spent 20-plus years in Brazil. doing mission work in Brazil, educating pastors there. Um, So he was a missionary, a pastor at heart, and also a wonderful scholar. And we've had the privilege of traveling to Israel together and teaching in India and Bangladesh. And uh, I just appreciate him so much. I'm excited for his content, but I'm excited most of all to share him uh, with you. So please welcome Dr. Scott Harrell.
1: Thank you, Rob. Well, I should say the uh, the enthusiasm's mutual. Uh, What he could have said is I have a lot of dirty things about this professor as well. When you're traveling, just two or three of you, in India, various places, as well as uh, Bangladesh, where the opposition was rather palpable, both in therefore Islamic and Hindu settings, you, you learn a lot about each other, and, and he's been gracious. It's wonderful to be with you here. I have been in the church once before, and uh, it's, it's a delight to see the growth and be with you here. Well, I'm kind of in, uh, I have to say, lecture mode today as we talk about Jesus and world religions. Um, yet, I trust that this will be edifying to you. You've been talking about exploring God, who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is our triune God as the triunity of three persons, one essence. And so I'd like to unfold for you a little bit, as has been advertised, how other religions understand Jesus and therefore how you may be able to connect somewhat better with some of them. Well, let's back up a little bit though and ask the question, who is Jesus Christ in terms of the world? I think it's fair to say wherever you go in the world, with few exceptions, but most people have heard of Jesus Christ. Indeed, I think it's fair to say, quite fair to say, that Jesus Christ is the most renowned person in all of human history. Even atheists will say, well, he was a great man, I don't believe much about him, but Jesus Christ, more extraordinarily than anyone else, is perhaps the greatest person of all history. And of course, when we, when we look at censuses around the world, the UN census, for example, it estimates that that about one-third of the world claims to be Christian. Now, sometimes that doesn't mean very much. If you're off in Europe, you'll say, well, I'm a Christian, rather than a Marxist or whatever else. So one-third of humankind at least officially says they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They follow kind of basic Christianity. And of course, many of those really do know the Lord. But what may surprise you is that Jesus Christ is also revered by millions of non-Christians around the world. That's where I want to help you a little bit today as we look at nearly another third of humankind that say we, we think Jesus is a great person, he's a prophet, or whatever else it might be. That's where I want to focus somewhat this morning and help you along the way. Because don't be deceived when you talk with a Muslim and says, well, I love Jesus too. And you think, oh, you do? Wow, that's great. Uh, don't assume what he's saying is what you're understanding. And likewise with a Hindu We'll talk about this as we continue on. How you define Jesus, and that's why it's so important that you're studying exploring God and understanding God, for understanding God gives you the framework, the superstructure of everything else in your Christian faith. And understanding who Jesus is correctly or incorrectly really defines the way of salvation or the lack of that way of salvation for others. Jesus said some rather radical, offensive things. Indeed, repeatedly, it drew the ire—in fact, more than that—of religious leaders of Israel at that time. Uh, not more, more than once, certainly. They, they wanted to kill him, and Jesus said, "You do want to kill me?" But they were understanding. They were understanding what Jesus was saying. This comes out of John five, already in Jerusalem, of course, the, the city of God, the, 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 the Zion of our God. And listen to what Jesus says. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, they pretty much understood Father must be God he's talking about. The Father wasn't often used for God at the time of Jesus. It's Jesus that gives us that name, Father, 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 again and again. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Whoa, what is he saying? Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son. Well, they knew he was talking about himself. He calls himself the Son of Man over and over. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That's amazing. If people are getting it at all as to when, when Jesus is speaking. That's just, that's just overwhelming what Jesus Christ is declaring of himself. And he says things like that more than once. Read with me this off the screen, if you will, from John 8. Read it with me. You are from below. I am from above. I'm not hearing you very loudly. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, that is, he the Messiah, you will indeed die in your sins. Before Abraham was, I am. That little phrase, I am, many of you know, translates the Old Testament Jehovah or Yahweh, that is the Lord, all caps. So when, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. What is this person from Nazareth saying? Indeed, before Abraham was, I am, one of the times they did take up stones to kill him. And so many will say, well, yeah, Jesus, we respect him. But to honor him as one honors the father, we'll see that that is not the case. What do the world religions say? Today there are estimated, mid-2015, 7,325,000,000 people in the world And of those, Christianity still, at least by censuses, would seem to be the largest religion that's out there. 2.4 billion people, one-third of humankind, would claim to be Christian. Islam is growing rapidly, largely by birth rate in Indonesia, Pakistan, Bangladesh, places like that. Malaysia, the larger uh, India, has 200 million plus Muslims in it. Uh, Islam is growing very quickly in these countries that have a birth rate of five or six children per, per woman. Islam at 1.7 billion. Then comes Hinduism at almost 1 billion themselves. Then non-religious people are growing. Um, the ones that don't say, well, I'm, I'm not an atheist, but I don't have a religion, thank you. This is the group growing in the United States right now. I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Buddhism claims about a half billion people spread out. They're a little more evangelistic than Hinduism is, in fact. There's a number of Buddhist as well as Hindu temples in this very area. Chinese folk religionists, this is official, kind of an official term, but Chinese folk religion or universism, as it is sometimes called, includes, well, Buddhism and Taoism and Confucianism, kind of mixtures of all of these, and veneration of ancestral spirits. And often a fear and a placation of demons as well or, or other spirits to make sure they don't come after me and my family. Folk, religionists, again, almost a half billion. There are also ethno-religions in the world. These are the traditional religions, maybe of the Aborigines in Australia or throughout Micronesia and Polynesia and throughout the South Pacific, Southeast Asia, Mongolia. There's ethnic religions all over the world, Eastern Eastern Europe, many there are returning to their pre-Christian religions, Wicca, Gaia, other things like that. North American religions, Mayan and other forms of religions in Central America or throughout Latin America, sub saharan Africa. These are the ethno or traditional tribal religions. Atheism is actually getting smaller or just barely holding its own at officially 136 million people in the world. You say, wow, is that all? Yes, that is all. We'll talk about it in just a second. But the total number of non-Christians in the world then is nearly 5 billion out of the 7.3 billion. That should weigh on our hearts for those who don't know the Lord. Many of these are very nice people in some respects. But without Christ, our sins are not washed away, are they? It might surprise you to know that there are in the world today 11,500 uh, distinct, organized religions. Wow. Here's what the world looks like. Uh, once again, in a pie chart, what is uh, perhaps most interesting, you do have the you have a little sliver that is Judaism, but, but they wouldn't even be a line on that chart, really, but it's there to show up a little bit. There are less Jews today at 14.5 million than there were before the Holocaust. Before Nazi Germany, there were nearly 17 million Jews. Now there are less than 15 million. Christianity, again, you'll see in the different flavors. Roman Catholicism, about half of all Christendom. But then Protestant, Evangelical, Anglican, and uh, kind of independent groups uh, of various sorts. Even some that are called uh, unaffiliated Christians. Those might be Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and others that would not affirm even the basic commitments of classical Christianity that God is triune and that Jesus is the eternal son of the father's side. Well, that's one third of humanity. Islam I didn't divide, but again, that's what, a little less than a quarter of humanity. Pantheism of sorts, though that's an exaggeration because everything sort of fits into those two colors of green. Uh, We'll get into that in just a moment, but that's about a quarter of the world, and you can see on from there. What is perhaps most extraordinary in this chart, which is based on estimates from about 2010, but in 1980, hear this, in 1980, 22% of the world population claimed to be atheist, 22%. Now, again, if you were, you were Chinese and somebody knocked on your door and said, what religion are you in communist China under Mao? Well, you'd probably say atheist. Or in the Soviet Union under Stalin or, or well, later on, Khrushchev and others. Uh, if you want to belong to the communist party in any of these countries, you've got to be atheist. So whether North Korea or other Cuba or Mozambique, Angola, Ethiopia, a lot of those fairly Marxist at that time, uh, you would have said you're atheist, likely, if you wanted to save your skin but today it's less than 2%, from 22% to 2%. There are very loud voices out there, and you think of the academy, the the universities, with Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, uh, Daniel Dennett, the list goes on, the late Christopher Hitchens, but atheism gives no meaning at all in life, except what you try to make of it at the moment. Uh, Atheism is a I don't want to say dying breed because they'll be round. There'll be other rounds with them, but this is an interesting pie chart, isn't it? As we look at the religions of the world. Our purpose this morning is to ask, how is Jesus perceived in the world religions? And we'll look at Hinduism, Buddhism, spiritism, animism, we might say polytheism, and Islam. And forgive me, I'll probably be... I have to to simplify. uh, I have to exaggerate to a certain extent, uh, that has put groups, stereotype groups that, that may not always quite believe uh, what I'm saying. But uh, let's get the big picture first of all. And of course we want to respond, well, we want to respond to those of other religions. You're not too far from the University of Texas, Dallas and other junior colleges, and not too far from UNT. And of course, there's many, many internationals that are coming. Dallas will receive one of the largest, if not the largest, group of Syrian refugees. People are coming here both as refugees and as sophisticated business people, and and fairly affluent in many ways. So you rub shoulders with others who are Muslim, or Hindu, or Buddhist. Let's, uh, Let's understand a little better what is often said. Jesus and Hinduism, first of all. Again, nearly one billion people in the world claim to be Hindus, the vast majority in India, um, but a growing number here as well. Uh, the largest mosque, one of the largest outside of India in the world is in Houston, where tens of millions of dollars were invested there. And now you have a Hindu temple nearby here as well. Hindus tend to be very, very gracious and accepting and syncretistic. Understand, however, we use the word Hinduism, but that was a British term, even probably before them, way back to the Persians. But Hinduism was to describe all the religions of India, east of the Indus River, which runs through Pakistan as well. Hinduism was just a kind of catch-all term for all the religions of India. So understand that a Hindu might actually be atheist, or polytheists, have many gods in their house, which would be rather typical. Or worship one, like Hare Krishna. Well, the list goes on and on. They might even, well, we'll look at uh, what I think stands behind much of this belief. They do tend to believe that there is an eternal way that includes all religions. And so, you're Christian, that's fine, I'm Hindu, don't bother me, but that's all right. We're all, we're all somehow related to the to the high god i want to focus on what is really the backdrop to much hindu thought and that is what is called advaita or vedanta hinduism vedas the Vada, vedanta takes us back to the early religious writings but advaita means non dualistic it means that finally finally god is everything as i'm putting up here behind me everything is one and that everything is God. For many in Hinduism, we live in the world of Maya. God is everything, all good, evil, beyond any kind of personality or holiness or any particular characteristics. Everything, everything is God. Hey, our, how many of you have read Siddhartha? You ever heard of that by Herman Hess? Remember back to college days? Anyone? No, I'm not going to call on you, don't worry, but the famous film was practically the Bible of the hippie generation. Well, everything is one. So, so the flower, the fish dying on the seashore gasping, uh, the murderer plunging a knife into some innocent victim, and then the beheader of that murderer. All of this, all of this is said to be one and said to be wonderful. But if God is everything, then... You are God as well. Your problem is you don't know it. And so the purpose of life is to discover God within. The Atman, the true Brahman spirit that, that is the one of all that we are. And what gets in the way, in fact, is your own Jiva. Uh, the Sanskrit term for your personality. You think you are who you are. You have your name, you have your wishes, all of that. That's all illusion. You must get beyond that. And discover your divine self There's many ways to do that But once you have discovered your divine self Then you become a kind of conscious human God You create your own reality Now there's a lot going on in Hinduism But this is a part of it all You become master creator of your own reality That's a little like Buddhism as well But with a different twist Well, who is Jesus Christ in Hinduism? Typically, he is highly esteemed, often prayed to, said that 20% of the highest class, the Brahma class in Chennai and Madras, prays to Jesus. But along with a lot of others, they pray to. He's considered a great ethical teacher, particularly Mahatma Gandhi, you would be familiar with. Respect is given to Jesus, but not to the Christian version of Jesus. Indeed, as one put it, the Christ we know is neither of the East nor the West, but men have localized, like in Jesus of Nazareth, what God meant to be universal. He's one of many manifestations of God, as they would put it. The Ramakrishna who traveled into the West Around 1900, became very famous, and many became followers of Eastern pantheism. He made two claims. In a normal state, he said he was just a human being, like you and I. But in strange fits of God consciousness, he would claim to be eternally free, and incarnation, an incarnation of God. He said that he lived earlier as Rama, as Krishna, as Buddha, as Jesus. Uh, Many would say the same thing. Various Swamis uh, believe that they are incarnations of uh, these previous enlightened figures. For Swami Zivinanda, Christ or Krishna, it's all the same for me. What about Christ in Hinduism a little further? Get this they will often talk of Christ and the Christ Spirit, a cosmic Christ but defined very differently from a personal being. Rather, it is the God consciousness that you and I can have. And that Jesus of Nazareth uh, may have experienced that. They would say he has. But Christ is that term of, a uh, again, that consciousness of God beyond us. Sarvimpali Radhakrishnan. What to think of Christ is undoubtedly a most important problem to an educated Hindu Jesus is a supreme illustration of the growth from human origins to divine destiny. He's a mystic, a great hero, the revealer of the profoundest depths of ourselves. A little bit more. And by the way, the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, for some of you old timers, you will remember as the Beatles all congregated in India and became his followers, particularly, um, which one was it? George Harrison. Jesus in Hinduism, Jesus is not the eternal son of God, nor really uniquely related to God. As one put it, Christ is not, never was, never will be God, as the father, he uses that term for Brahman, but unfairly, Brahman's beyond all personhood. He's humanity, pure and simple, in which divinity dwells. He shows not how God became man, not how can man become God, but how we can exalt our humanity by making it more divine. So even the Mahatma Gandhi argued that we're all sons of God, some just further along than others. So in Hinduism, in Advaita Hinduism, again, Hinduism varies quite a lot, so you need to ask questions, but God is everything. Some Hindus have said, God is the circle with the ribbon pulled off. There's nothing that is not God. When Charles Manson, who slaughtered Sharon Tate and the, the, the horrific murders several decades back, was on the witness stand, and they were asking him, this very evil person really, but he, they asked him something, and he said, if God is one, then what is evil? Everything is the same. Everything, well... There is no final evil and good. You say, well, what about the laws of karma? But karma is just an ironclad cosmic principle. It has nothing finally to do with the God supposedly that englobes all things. Jesus in Hinduism. So God is everything. We are on the periphery of God. To get into God, then we need to, in one way or another, do our duties in life or abandon ourselves to enter into God. The point of yoga, some of you practice yoga. Be aware that six steps are fine. You do the disciplines and breathe correctly. And on point six, meditate on one singular thing. But beware of steps seven and eight. Step seven is you begin to pull into yourself like a tortoise or turtle pulls into a shell. A half trance, half consciousness step eight is where you transcend all sense of personal identity you you lose consciousness of self as john sitting in the front row or whatever else rather you transcend that you have escaped your humanity and have become one with god so beware that's the final point of yoga virtually every buddhist temple and some of the hindu ones i take students to that's what they want you to practice Because yoga, not a written code, rather it is sort of the four laws of Buddhism and Hinduism. We go further. Jesus and Buddhism. Buddhism, of course, was born out of northern India. I was just in that state two months ago, uh, Uttar Pradesh, where the Buddha was born and died and is buried. We're talking now about Siddhartha Gautama Buddha, who lived about 500 years before Christ. He was an extraordinary person. Some inter-religionists will say, "Well, we only have record of two human beings in the history of the world where the disciples asked, "Who are you?" When they asked the Siddhartha, uh, Gautama, "What is God?" he was simply silent, finally saying, "He's not this, he's not that." Nitty Niti. Well, who are you? A God?" No an angel? No. A saint? No. Who are you? He finally said, I am illumined. And that term for illumined in Sanskrit is related to Buddha. That is, Buddha means to awake and to know. It seems that the Siddhartha Gautama Buddha believed that even the gods and others' spiritual beings of the universe, needed to be illumined by him. He uh, maybe you know some of the history, born in a very kind of Disney world of India, protected from all sites of, of uh, pain and suffering and death, but finally, after marrying a beautiful woman and having a child, escaped the walls of his father's palace and then lived as a mendicant uh, beggar. And finally, struggling with asceticism on the one side and and on the other, lush ways of life, came to sit under a Bodhi tree, and there was illumined after several years of struggling. There are four noble truths that he began to teach. Very interestingly, truth number one, the absolute of all Buddhism, is to live is to Suffer. All life has suffering and pain. And why do we suffer? Because suffering is caused by desire. Not bad desires or things like... All desire eventually ends in suffering. You love your mother. You love your wife. But you're going to die. Suffering will come. So the way to enlightenment is to eliminate suffering by eliminating desire. All desire. And so, then comes the eightfold path of Buddhism. Who is Jesus Christ in Buddhism? Number one, Jesus is one of many enlightened ones. He is uh, one who has arrived. I mean, Buddhists can accept that Jesus is a bodhisattva or enlightened one among many. Some revere the Buddha. Of course, the Dalai Lama of the Tibetan Buddhism is one form of Buddhism. There are many forms around the world. Others also have said to attain some kind of a deity. But the absolute of Buddhism is transcendence. It is going beyond any sense of personal being. That that Even as human beings, we are... We aren't what we think we are. All we are is a not, K-N-O-T, or nexus of relationships with those around us. If you take away your father, mother, and friends, and family, and school, and business, and all of that, there's nothing, nothing in the center. And so the non-self is the true reality of what you are. And in fact, beyond all of that, the final reality of the universe is nothingness. Absolute nothingness. There are hierarchies of gods and enlightened ones and spirits. But beyond all of that is nothingness. Now, in Hinduism, God was everything. But in Buddhism, almost all Buddhism claims to be atheistic. In Buddhism, then the final reality is, they would say, a kind of blissful nothingness. Well, Jesus in Buddhism, ultimate reality then is that nothingness very much all about me transcending myself as this modern art, which also appeared in Time Magazine and other forms of art denote. So to talk of an eternal personal son of God and relationship with the Father at the very back of the universe or God as Trinity for the Buddhist is incoherent. Buddha taught that suffering and rebirth are because of human desire. Buddhism, like Hinduism, continues the idea of karma and reincarnation. But contrast that to our Lord Jesus. Buddha was enlightened uh, under the Bodhi tree and sat there with a blissful smile. But the secret was not desiring anything. Contrast that to the Lord Jesus. Born in poverty by, well, a virgin mother, but certainly there was scandalous talk at the time. But Jesus came into our reality fully in life. He laughed, he wept, he showed anger, he loved, he suffered as deeply as any as humanly possible, didn't he? And he taught us how to live in the midst of a broken world, but engaged with others, caring for the poor, whatever else it might be. He taught us that life, the essence of life is relationship with God and him. He is the living vine not detachment. And the difference is night and day between Jesus and the Buddha. And so for the Buddhists, salvation is not having our sins washed away and God paying the price for our sin. And therefore, he provides the way and we respond. Rather, salvation is through transcendence from personhood. So whether Zen or Sokodakai or the There's many, many forms of Buddhism. Still, you're trying to get beyond yourself. Talk of forgiveness makes no sense. There's nothing to be forgiven. There's karma, good vibrations, bad vibrations. But talk of the cross and Jesus, his shed blood like we sang this morning, well, for the Buddhist is distasteful. Salvation is very individualistic and it is getting out of your humanity and transcending into a sense of global consciousness. That is nirvana in Sanskrit, or samadhi, there's various terms for it, satori in Japanese. But you've arrived, you've been illumined, you've become timeless. Jesus in Buddhism. Comparing Jesus and the Buddha is important. And, say, and so when we as believers say, Jesus is the only way, that's just intolerance. How narrow-minded can you be? Buddhism, though again it varies tremendously. Buddhism uh, affirms nothingness as that final reality. The personal self is really non-self, that's illusion. And sin is meaningless. For these reasons and others, I think Buddhism, particularly in the Zen forms and others, are the most distant of all religions from from Christian faith. Let's step to something else. Jesus in animism and spiritism and of course uh, animism, spiritism, tribal primitive religions spans around the world. Uh, again, from all through the world, every, every part. Even those who say they're Buddhist or Islamic or Christian often function on animist level with spirits and placation of the dead and so many other things like that. Though on a survey, they'll say they're Christian. And yet there are certain patterns we see also in animism, spiritism. Uh, you can see behind me, people claim to serve God or the gods and spirits, but they do so through different ways, usually by placating or manipulating the, the gods. I just came from Brazil two weeks ago, and there the spiritism is not people with bones through their noses. Well, it's very sophisticated, the present in the country, not now, but formerly There have been spiritists on those levels and healers that, that supposedly do, like John of God and others, these miraculous things, and they're all talking about, I show a video in class, and, the, man, and then the healer is saying, don't give me any credit, it's all for the Master Jesus. It sounds almost like Christianity, unless you're astute in what he's saying. As he says, we've been sent from other planets and uh, the galaxies of gods out there. To be honest, it was much more like, Mormonism than like classical Christian faith. If known of all, at all, and usually it is the case today, Jesus or Christ is perceived as a respected, powerful spirit. Some evil spirits avoid Jesus, of course. And so sometimes when, when Jesus Christ is spoken of, I've seen it, where someone will go wild and you'll see a demonic presence uh, but other times, very interestingly in Acts 17, 16, there you have Paul preaching the gospel and others with him in Philippi. And there's a girl well known as a seer, made, a, made her masters a lot of money in, in Philippi. And, and the Bible says, and for many days she followed Paul and others through the streets crying out, these men show you the way to salvation. And you know, it was like a, a great advertisement. Apparently she was well known, but finally Paul had had enough of it, cast out the demon from the girl, the spirit of divination, and then literally all hell broke loose as they were carted off and lashed and put in prison and so forth. Well, so spirits can be deceptive. They can pretend to tell the truth and in part do tell the truth. Some spirits imitate Jesus, counterfeiting his works or distorting his teaching. We are warned amply by Jesus and the apostles, that in the last days there will be very, very sophisticated lies, religious lies and imitations of Jesus to expect it. It's coming. But be assured that all spirits, all malignant spirits, demons, are subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't be afraid. God has given you authority. Put on the armor. Be right. Find others but you can step into those situations. You don't have to turn and run, and you don't have to say, no, there's a church down the street that deals with that stuff, but I don't. Some word of caution here as well, because we all grew up with cartoons and fantasy and movies and, you know, other, there's lots of them we can name off, and Lord of the Rings and so forth, and many sense. But be aware that more and more in the cartoon world with the superheroes and the Marvel universe is coming heavier stuff. It's on, it's on the horizon where, and we see it sometimes, where literally gods, no longer just superheroes, now divinities, gods, such as the new one coming out soon, Neil Gaiman's American Gods. They say, well, we're not messing quite yet with organized religion, but we'll be talking about Father, who in this, this book he calls Odin, Godfather Odin, which is Eastern Europe, pre-Christian stuff, uh, and we'll be talking about Jesus and others. So as you let your kids sit in front of the television set or play the video games, be aware that there is a mindset being inculcated through the media on a very sophisticated level as well. Let's go a little further. Jesus and Islam. Wow, there's so much to say here. How many of you know Muslims? Uh, raise your hands. Friends that are Muslims or co Yeah, almost all of you. Well, understand what is said. First of all, everyone in Islam will say, well, Jesus is a true prophet. Like Noah and Abraham and Moses, uh, Jesus also spoke the truth of God. They'll say that. I've, I've taken large groups of the mosques and even with PhDs in Islam responding, and they'll say, oh no, we've got thousands of, go- uh, of prophets, but Jesus is one of the top prophets we have. And so here at the Islamic mosque in, at DFW, sometimes one, ones here in North Dallas, Uh, They'll say, we love Jesus. We love Jesus. But what do they mean? I mean, Jesus, or Isa, is spoken of many times in the Quran. Uh, He's called son of Mary 33 times in the Quran. It may surprise you to know that the Quran uh, staunchly defends the virgin birth of of Jesus from Mary. That that surprised me as well. Uh, It is a miracle of God. So... Muhammad wasn't born of a virgin, but Jesus was. Muslims will admit, the Quran points that way, the Hadith, also the secondary level, that Jesus performed more miracles than Muhammad. So many times when when miracles do occur, people will say, that must be Jesus. Nobody else can do that except Jesus. A third thing, Jesus, for the Muslims, was not crucified or buried or resurrected there is no empty tomb. There is a tomb for Muhammad, a big one in Medina. But, but Jesus, born of a virgin, did more miracles, was never buried, or there is no empty tomb where his body was kept. Rather, for the Muslim, Allah took Jesus into heaven at the end of his ministry, and because God, Allah, would never allow His true Prophet to face the indignity, the suffering of the cross. So God took Jesus, and the Jews and the Romans grabbed somebody else. They killed the wrong person. But here is a shocker as well. I was teaching world religions in Amman, Jordan, when the student said, "You know this, don't you? That." Virtually, especially in Sunni Islam, the vast majority of Muslims believe Jesus will return into this world and judge the world. But what the Muslim says is he will judge Christians and break crosses and judge Jews for having been unfaithful to what he taught, saying, why did you worship me? The Quran is very clear on this as well. Why did you worship me? You're supposed to only worship God the Father. But too much is going on in scripture to be that simplistic. Jesus absolutely is only an apostle, they argue, not the Son of God. Indeed, the calligraphy in the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem includes every Quranic passage that mentions Jesus. It's out of their holy book, the Quran. Quoting Stephen Prothero at the University of Boston University. In fact, the purpose of the Dome of the Rock's inscriptions is to assert the truth of Tawid, or the oneness of God, over against the falsehood of the deity of Christ and the Trinity. You need to understand that in Islam, uh, there is a bridge from this life, the bridge Surah and or the Hadith. The usual thought is that from this life you die and then you cross a sword, a bridge as narrow as as a two-edged sword, into paradise, a better place. Down below are the flames of hell, and Allah's at the top of the bridge. So one might make it into paradise, another might not. This one's got 60% good, the other and only 40% bad. Maybe Allah will let him in. But why? If I asked the Imam at the, the Central Mosque of North Texas, I said, Well, you would agree that none of us are holy as Allah is holy. He of course, nobody's holy like God is holy. Then how can God forgive anyone and allow them to pass into paradise? He was taken back. Uh, His response was interesting. Even if I'm cast into hell forever, still I will praise him. But he didn't have an answer. How does God forgive? If he's the moral absolute of the universe, how does he forgive anybody? If he forgives anybody, he's no longer the moral absolute from which all right and wrong is defined. In Islam, the Shahada, there is uh, no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. It's what is said to be, it's what you say to become, with a sincere heart, a Muslim. Understand, no matter what anyone tells you, that in Islam, God has no covenants, no friendships with humankind. There's no no relationship. We're created not in God's image, but only as creation to serve Allah. There is no friendship. No sonship. No relationship with Allah in Islam. And so why do Muslims convert to Christ? Well one is their sure salvation. You can be sure. A sincere Muslim will say. We're not even sure Muhammad made it into paradise. And paradise isn't heaven. It's not the presence of God. It's just a better place in Islam. For us heaven is the very presence of God. Forever and ever. Sure salvation in Jesus is one reason people come to Christ. No Muslim is sure if they'll really be, really enter into paradise or not. Jesus Christ's character, this is from a large poll among nearly 700 of those converted out of purely Islamic backgrounds. This is what they say brought them to Christ. He does not retaliate. He's humble. He loves the poor and outcasts. The power of his love is unique, and one can enter a relationship with him different from Islam. They said this, those who converted, Christians, only they care for justice, the poor and oppressed. They demonstrate unconditional love and peacefulness. Dreams and visions, occurring in uh, over 25% of those converted out of a purely Muslim background came through dreams and visions and answered prayer, supernatural experiences. And so we come back to the biblical testimony of our Savior. Note Hebrews 1.3, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the radiance of his glory, God's glory, and the exact representation of God's being sustaining all things, the Son, by his powerful word. Or again in Colossians 1, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And so, how do we talk with those who are followers of other religions? Number one, start with questions. Don't assume that you know everything they believe because beliefs vary so radically in every one of these religions. So ask what is human? What is sin? What is salvation? What's the problem with humanity? Start with questions, sincere ones to know from them. But speak of Jesus and the gospel as the Lord opens the doors, and we should be praying that He will, in trans political, trans geographical senses. When I'm in India, people say, oh, you're, you're from America. You're a Christian, aren't you? Well, Christianity was in India at least 1,500 years before it was in North America. So speak in biblical categories and therefore help them, persuade them to learn of Jesus for themselves. Try looking at the, the gospel, the Inja, you know, persuade them to learn through scripture, challenge them to read the Bible, especially again, the gospels. And and sometimes because we don't know what others believe, maybe the woman's wearing a burqa or the man looks quite severe, as uh, some tend to do as a Muslim leader or man, love them. Don't be afraid. Love them genuinely without fear. Pray boldly. Trust the Holy Spirit to work in their lives. And make the gospel clear and keep at it. Be graciously persistent. That's what we're here for, isn't it? To be a witness of our Savior. Now, afterwards, I understand, Ross has told me we'll have pizza in a, a wide open time of Jesus and the world religions, and some of you may want to ask about Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or others. But this is, again, to give you some backdrop to understand where others are coming from as we, as ambassadors for Christ, share the gospel with others. Let's pray. Our God, how we thank you for the precious gift of salvation that you, the triune God, have provided for us everything necessary to be made right with you. You are the just and the justifier. And so we cry out out of love for you. You loved us first, and that's why we love you. Hallelujah, for the gospel. And so as the fields really are white for harvest, will you use us to reach others? in the days and weeks and months to come. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.